Let's pray. That's better. <laughs> Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed come with fire and would cleanse us and help us to become more like Jesus. Amen. Well, it's, uh, I suppose this must be, what, the third Sunday of uh, 2017. And uh, we've had certain people making predictions about 2017, and they're all very uh, confused. Perhaps the common denominator is that uh, we will experience something of Brexit year this year, and we will experience something of the uh, new presidency in the USA this year. It's difficult, isn't it? No one really knows what the future will hold. We, of course, don't know what the future will hold for ourselves individually, our health, our welfare, our jobs, our families, our relationships. But here in this passage this morning, we read of one man who predicted the future. This man not only predicted the future, he identified the present and gave warnings to his people of his generation. That man, of course, was John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, living in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. A wild man, a man of unusual characteristics. I'm not sure whether he would get the job here uh, if he applied in uh, March. Now, last week, Margaret started us off with an imagination exercise, and I thought that was absolutely excellent. So I'm going to invite you to do the same, to use your imagination. I'm going to invite you to imagine that you are living in Jerusalem or in one of the small towns near the River Jordan. You don't have the internet, you don't have newspapers, you don't have television or radio or news reporters, but you do hear... Messages get sent. You hear of this man who's coming. He's coming to the River Jordan and he's making some wild statements. And you and your friends have heard this and that morning, it's a lovely morning in Israel, so you decide, yes, let's go. Let's go and walk down to the River Jordan. You get there and there are masses of people probably several times the size of this congregation this morning. And you wonder what's going on. But then over there you see some of your priests. So it's okay. Religiously it's okay because our priests are over there. And politically it's okay because over there there's some Roman soldiers so everything will be nice and safe. But there, oh dear, there are those horrible people tax collectors who rip you off. But you're there with your friends and you're listening. So I want you to listen this morning to what this man John says. And I think the first thing we see from our passage is that God speaks. God speaks. Luke sets the time and place of God speaking. So it must have been a really important point within Luke's account of Jesus' ministry. We see this in the first three verses of our reading. Note the people involved. Caesar, 
the ultimate political ruler within the Roman Empire. Then the governors, the tetrarchs, all the political rulers. Then we have the religious leaders. It sets the time of this event that you are there at. It's all the important people of the empire and the religious state of Israel. And yet what we see here, it wasn't to these important people that God spoke. No, we read in verse 2 that the word of God came to an obscure man living in a desert place. Well, I think this points out to us two important points that I want to bring to you this morning. Firstly, God is speaking. God is intervening into the state of Israel after they'd been somewhere in the region of about 400 years without any voice from God through prophetic words. But God hasn't forgotten his people. Though for them, that must have seen the way it was for them. Because this is part of God's plan for salvation for his people. He's preparing the way for the coming of his Messiah. And we see here that God has the power and ability to intervene into human history. And I believe for us this morning, beginning this new year of 2017, it's a good thing for us to remember that God still has the power to intervene and God does intervene into human society. God still speaks today, whether that be through his written word, the Bible, or through prophetic words spoken by his chosen people. And so I'd encourage you this year, during 2017, if we are followers of Jesus, then let us look for God intervening into our society, into our city, into our country, and into our personal lives. But I also think there's a message for us this morning that not only does God speak and intervene, but that God uses unlikely people. God uses unlikely people for his plan. Now, the account of John is seen in all of the Gospels to a varying degree. God sent an unlikely man into a desert or a lonely, rugged place without any of the comforts and learning of their society. It was a place away from all distractions of society and sent as a religious activity. And John the Baptist is one of the most distinctive characters you will find in the New Testament. We read in Matthew 3 that he had an unusual flair for fashion. He wore wild-looking clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He lived in a desert wilderness. He ate unusual food, locusts. Now, I can't imagine eating locusts. He ate locusts and he ate wild honey. I can imagine eating wild honey. And he preached a strange message. However, Unlike so many people, John the Baptist knew his mission in life and he showed courage in the execution of this. He clearly understood that he'd been set apart by God for a purpose. And again, we can be encouraged by this this morning, that God has planned plans for us if we are followers of him. God has a purpose for our lives. 
if we are willing to submit and obey his call upon us. And through God's direction, John the Baptist saw into the future. He predicted and pointed out the coming Messiah. And he was also able to see the true hearts of those people that we are standing with in that crowd this morning. The people who came to listen to his preaching. Because he challenged the people to prepare for the coming of their Messiah. He challenged them to turn away from their sin. He challenged them to be baptised as a symbol of repentance. And I think it's important to note that, that though John had no power or influence in the Jewish political or religious system, he delivered his message with a force of authority. People could not resist the overpowering truth of his words as they flocked by the hundreds to hear him and be baptised in the River Jordan. And even as he attracted the attention of the crowds, he never lost sight of his mission to point people to the coming Messiah. And even though he must have been very popular, he had a great ministry, he didn't waver from, from that message that was to challenge all within that society. That God's message given to John was the most important thing he had to give them. So let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. Let's look at God's message as given by John. Firstly, John recognises and declares the spiritual condition of some of those people who were in the crowd with us that morning. Look what he calls them in verse 7. He says, You brood of vipers, or snakes, as some translations state. Some of the people who came out to hear John, they wanted to be baptised so they could escape eternal punishment for their sinful lives. They wanted the outward sign of baptism that would show those watching that they had repented of their sins. But they weren't really repenting because they were not willing to change the way they lived. In other words, John was accusing them of being hypocrites. They wanted the outward sign, the baptism, which would be recognised by others, but they didn't want the inward change. And John has harsh words for such people. John knew that God values reformation above ritual. Confession of sins has to go hand in hand with a changed life. Confession must lead to actions. Now, in case you think this is a one-off, this is John being rather unusual, the Apostle James states the same in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, when he says, faith without deeds is dead. And Jesus also repeats the same words with harsh words to respectable religious leaders who lacked the willingness to repent. Those religious leaders wanted to be known as religious leaders. They wanted the favour of the people. They wanted eternal life, but they didn't want to repent of their sins, change and have faith in Jesus. So their lives were unproductive with regards to the kingdom of God. Turning from sin must lead to action. 
In fact, the word repent means to change direction. Following Jesus means more than saying the right words. It means acting upon what he teaches us. Now, I spent most of my teenage years uh, attending a Baptist church where within that service we had no formal confession. So when I started attending an Anglican church in my student times, the presence of a regular confession was a novelty and a practice that I found spiritually beneficial. It brought me weekly to the true state of my life, my spiritual life. It was a good thing. However, like any ceremony, it can become routine and we can become blasé to it. And secondly, I don't think it always points us to practical actions of change. Saying sorry to God for our actions is good, but these need to be turned into practical actions. So the first point then of, Jesus, of John's message is that true repentance must include practical actions. The second point that John makes is that the spiritual condition and spiritual security of the people can't rely upon their ethnic or national identity, that they were descendants of Abraham. Now, of course, there were going to be benefits for these people if they were members of families where God's laws were allowed to direct and influence how they lived. They were blessed if their fathers directed the family life in God's way. But this didn't mean that their individual relationship and salvation with God could be controlled by their fathers or their ancestors. Now this teaching of John shocked many of the crowd who believed that being Abraham's descendants was enough to ensure salvation for them. The religious leaders relied more on family lines than on faith for their standing with God. For them, religion was inherited. But a personal relationship with God cannot be handed down from parents to children. Every one of us has to make a personal decision as to whether or not to trust Christ. We cannot rely upon someone else's faith for our salvation. I couldn't rely on my father's faith for my salvation. We need to make that personal decision to trust in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, confess, repent, and change our lives' actions. Now, of course, for us New Testament people, there are many good points about being brought up in a Christian home. Many of us have been blessed by this, and there's been a blessing to our children. Many Christian parents teach and install wonderful values and characters within their children, which is a huge blessing to our society and may help to explain why many of the positive characteristics of British society today. But this doesn't mean that these children don't need to make personal responses to Jesus and to become his disciples for themselves. And this probably helps to explain why not all children of Christian parents choose this path and leave the church as they become adults. A personal choice has to be made to come to Jesus for his 
salvation. But thirdly, the third thing that John brings attention to the crowd, judgment is reality. Look at verse 9. The Life Application Bible says this, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yet every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown in the fire. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 7 verse 19 and in John 15 verse 6. The branch that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and burnt. Now, of course, judgment is a subject that we find difficult to accept in our liberal age that doesn't accept the holiness of God and that of individual responsibility for moral actions. And I wondered as I was thinking and praying about this, is this because there is such a low view of sin and judgment that we find it so difficult to tell people the good news that Jesus came so that we can have forgiveness for our sins and eternity with him. I think of John Bunyan's story, Pilgrim's Progress, which illustrates the nature of sin and what it does to us. And it can be helpful reading for all. Also note in verse 9, the axe is to fall. Where is it to fall? On God's children, the people of Israel. So this, as New Testament believers, applies to us as God's children. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? And this message of judgment is repeated again if you look down the passage to verse 17, where John states that he is, that is the Christ, who is to come, the Messiah, will separate the wheat from the chaff and burn up the chaff waste in unquenchable fire. A terrifying prospect. So then, in your imaginations, as you stand in that crowd, can you hear John's message? That John is declaring that in that crowd, that some of them are sinful. Some rely upon their ancestors for salvation, and that there will be judgment by God. Now, quite understandably, as you stand there, and as the crowd stands there, the crowd responds to this. Who wouldn't? And the crowd asked John, well, if this is true what you are saying, what can be done about this situation? What should we do in response to this message that we, you have brought us? Well, I want you to look at verses, or I invite you to look at verses 11 to 14. Because in 11 to 14, we see John's response. Note, there's no theology there's no religion or religious activity suggested in John's answer, but rather practical actions. So let's have a look at these practical actions in a bit more detail. Look in verse 11. What does John say to these people? He says, share what you have with those in need. In your imagination again, just consider for a moment how different our society would be if this point was taken seriously by all Christians in the UK today. Well, it reminds me of the young church that we read of in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, how they shared all that they had. 
the followers of Jesus were seen in a very positive way by their society and God added greatly to their number who believed. And when God's people acted in this way to share goods and needs, we see a positive response to the gospel. If you doubt this, consider the work of the Salvation Army and work of Christians in the 19th century. Consider the work of many of the organisations within our country today. When we show practical care, consideration and the love of Jesus to people in need, we open up ourselves to them and the gospel is proclaimed and his kingdom extended. I don't know if you recently heard, as I did in the news, that the experts in, uh, in data, in financial situations, have said that in the last 10 years, within our country, the differences in wealth has grown markedly between the top managers and their workforce, let alone those people who don't have jobs. And so if we as Jesus' followers believe that our wealth and position, possessions have been provided for us by God, let's take every opportunity within our city and parish to share God's blessings that we have been given with others who are in need. It was great to see this morning before the service that notice about the food bank coming up on our screens. But secondly... Not only are we to share what we have with those in need, John says in verses 12 to 14, whatever your job is in life, do it well with fairness. Now you will note in these verses that John doesn't tell these people to leave their jobs. He talks to tax collectors and soldiers, people who were not well considered in their society. They were representatives of the hated Romans and people in these positions were often corrupt and extorted money from the people. Well, John doesn't tell them to leave these jobs, but rather work within fairness and obey the law. And of course, many of us can recognise this within our own jobs and we can act in the same way with fairness and without exploiting others. But thirdly, John says to them in, verse, uh, in the next verse, he says, be content with your earnings. He says this to the soldiers. And this is a hard command, isn't it, of John's for all the people. And it's even more hard perhaps for us in our consumerist society where we have temples to mammon called shopping centres. And these shopping centres encourage us to think of self and to have jealous attitudes. It's hard, isn't it, to be content when the whole of the media, the advertising industry, peer pressure, encourages us and push us to want more material goods, which can be only be attained by having more money. Well, as followers of Jesus, I believe it helps us if we start by acknowledging and thanking God for all the good things he has given us. And so we've got three different ways how we can actually achieve what John is setting out. And John, of course, one of John's greatest strengths that we read of in, this, in the Gospels is that he was totally focused and faithfully committed to the call of God 
on his life. He took the Nazarite vow for life. He personified the term set apart from God. John knew that he'd been given a specific job to do and he set out with singular obedience to fulfill that mission. He talked about repentance from sin. He lived with boldness of purpose with his uncompromising mission and he was willing to be a martyr for his stand against sin. And that's a good example, isn't it, for us to follow as we go into 2017. But I don't want to finish there because John was called by Jesus as one of the greatest men. John spoke hard truths, but he also encouraged them. Look at verse 18, and I want to finish on this verse. Because verse 18 says this, And with many other words, John exhorted the people, he encouraged the people, and preached the good news. John preached the good news that that Messiah that they'd been waiting for for years and years and years, that their Messiah, Jesus, was coming, the one that would offer salvation for all people. Despite what John had said about some of the crowd, remember those harsh words, you brood of vipers. He was bringing them the good news of Jesus coming, of their saviour. He would baptise them with the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit that Jesus would baptise them with was called or likened to fire. Fire which gives us light and fire that burns up all sin and iniquities. And this, of course, is what we have got to offer our community, our friends, our families in 2017. This should be an encouragement to us. This is what we can offer people in our society. This is what we should be about. And with this purpose in life, we can share in the good news of Jesus. We can look forward to the coming that Jesus promised us. And so, as we don't know what's going to happen in 2017, we don't even know whether we're going to get to the end of 2017, because Jesus has promised he will come again. He will come to judge the living and the dead. The living who believe will join him, and those that have died believing will also join him. So that's the great message we've got for 2017. It's a great message but it's a message that needs also us to look at the harsh side as well as the good side, the judgment and the, and the salvation that is offered to us this year. So let's rejoice. Amen.